The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Bear with me. Lord, we bless your name for giving us the gift of music and a chance to to play and to sing ourselves and then to watch and listen to someone else play and sing and lift up your name and lift up praise of what you have done to exalt your name, sending your Son. We, We thank you for that gift. And we thank you also for your word written down, passed down through the ages to us, placed in our hands in a language that we can read. You have spoken. Thank you. And I ask you, Father, Son, and Spirit, to take this word of yours and make it live for us. And I particularly pray that now, because of what this passage is, perhaps the most familiar passage in the whole Bible, And so there is great danger that even in my own heart or in my words or in the hearts of those who sit here and listen, that it will fall flat due to familiarity. And if we're just people in our own wisdom and power talking about this, that will surely happen. So God, I pray that you will not leave us to just ourselves. Would you please, Father, send your Spirit here into our midst that He might exalt the Son. Spirit, will you come and work in the minds and hearts of every one of us here in this room, all across the age spectrum, some who believe, some who don't, Would you work in each one of us to give life to us that we would listen and hear and see the glory of Jesus? Would you shine on Him that He may be seen? Jesus, You are the only hope that we have. But you are a good hope. You are enough. You are all that we need. And so I pray that you would work in us, that we would see that and believe it and experience it as real life. Not just a a quaint story, nice information that doesn't live and move in us and grip us and change us. Father, Son, and Spirit, would You make this live? That You would be glorified in in simple words like these about a story that we know. We are dependent on You. Apart from You, we can do nothing. Apart from You, we are nothing. We ourselves are flowers quickly fading a a mist of vapor. 
here and then gone. We are mindful of the fact that for several thousand years, people have been coming to this time of year, looking at this passage in Your Word, pondering it, and walking away from it. Some for their great good and joy, and and some not. And I pray that now in this flow of history, as You have come to this time with this people, that You would move, that we would be changed by this passage and not miss it. God, we depend on You for that, so please come. Exalt Your Word. Exalt the Son. Build Your church. For the glory of Christ and for the good of His people, I pray it. Amen. This coming Saturday is Christmas, which makes today the last Sunday before Christmas. And so I'm leaving our usual study of the book of 1 Corinthians to preach a Christmas sermon. But it may be helpful to acknowledge the obvious. I'm going to preach on Luke chapter 2, which is addressing the coming of the Savior. We're all familiar with this passage. It's a huge turning point in, in God's plan, his, his centuries, His millennium long, His eternal plan to save a people. It's a, a huge turning point. And it was all planned and prophesied and then carried out long before there was such a thing as Christmas. At least Christmas as we know it. I don't need to say too much about what Christmas has become for us. We're familiar with it. There there are some good things in it, like getting to the family. There are some bad things in it. Witness all the the commercialism and the, the gluttony and greed. It's all there. But for good or for bad, Christmas has become for us a suspension of reality. Sometime in June, we begin to talk about Christmas, and it becomes eventually a break. We call time out. And we do a whole bunch of things, and we talk about a whole bunch of things, and we sing, and we celebrate, and then sometime... We call time in and resume regular life and leave that all there until June comes around again, maybe July. It's a, it's a break. It's a pause. But as we look at Luke 2 and think about what's there, we should note that this was never intended to be Christmas. It was never intended to be a suspension of reality, but very clearly an interjection into reality that changes it all. We would do well to realize that, that something has happened here that was a one-time event that is supposed to have changed everything so that moving on from that point, there is not this time in, time out, time in, time out, constant fluctuation, but there is a, an event that changes everything. So we're talking about Christmas, I suppose, but really we're talking about your 24-7, 365 life. And we're leaving 1 Corinthians, I suppose, but really we're not. We've been talking for the last number of weeks in 1 Corinthians about nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That's what Christmas is about. Nothing but Christ and Him crucified. I like how we sang, He was born for Calvary. The, the two 
are inseparable. So there's a passage here before us that is about Christmas, and it's about the coming of, of the Messiah. But really it's about your life all the year through, and it is, it is meant to, and it can give life and joy to you every day of the year, no matter what your circumstances. It is not required and not even expected that you change, that you suspend them to find hope, and then throw that away as you resume life. That's a little bit where we're going this morning, as we look at... Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pass back and, and kind of clarify, clarify some of the details, especially in the first seven verses, before giving most of our attention to verses 8 and following. So let me read all of Luke 2, 1 to 21, a familiar passage to us. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verses 1 to 7 give us the historical context of, and then, and then the birth of Jesus, explaining how it was that Mary and Joseph, who lived in Nazareth, ended up giving birth in Bethlehem, 90 miles away to the south. They ended up there, by the decree of the sovereign God. 
I thought it was Caesar. Yes. He, they ended up there by the decree of the sovereign God who had long centuries before prophesied that the Messiah would be born in little Bethlehem. And providentially, God fulfills His word through a Roman who decides that it's time to order the taxes. And he writes a decree and tells them all to get up and go home to your ancestral home. And so he does. And so it is that God's word is fulfilled. He goes back to the city of David because he is of the lineage of David. Verse 4 emphasizes that a couple times, reminding us that there's something about the Messiah, the Davidic king, going on here. So Joseph goes home with his fiancée Mary, who's pregnant. Many of us probably know how that came about. And if we'd been reading through the beginning of the book of Luke, we would realize that she is with child, not by any ordinary means. Probably most of us are familiar with the fact that God had come to her and told her that she was going to be the carrier of a very unique child, a child that has no human father, that is just placed inside of her. A special child, as we'll see. She's been carrying this baby, about to give birth. She's well along in that process as they come to Bethlehem. And in fact, while they were there, it says she gave birth. Not, here's a couple places where we need to kind of recalibrate our understanding of the Christmas story. There's nothing here that says it was on the first night that they arrived. We, we often have this picture of, you know, between labor pains, Joseph run around town trying to find some place. It just says while they were there. While they were there, she gave birth. And as to where they gave birth, it, it was in some sort of a stable, perhaps a cave, some place where animals were kept. Because there was no room for them in the inn, which, again, we need to work on a little bit. The language here indicates that they're probably not talking about the Holiday Inn. This probably is not a business. And the image that we have of, of a mean old innkeeper throwing away a woman who's in labor probably is not accurate. The, the word that's used here for in, Luke uses it later to talk about the upper room where the Last Supper was held. It's a word commonly used for a, a great big public space. Maybe outside, maybe like a, a pavilion that would shelter people, but perhaps even in a private house. What he's likely saying here is that Joseph and all of his distant relatives all came home and Joseph got there late. And so all the floor space was taken. There was no room in the great room, maybe the outdoor pavilion, and so they got the overflow housing. They might not even have been alone there. Remember, this is a pilgrimage-making society. They all travel up to Jerusalem several times every year. They are used to traveling, used to having hundreds of thousands of people flood to a place. And so they have to sleep in all kinds of places. We find this more appalling than they did. But what is accurate in our, our, our modern conception of this is that it is very simple and very humble. There is nothing elaborate about this. They are sleeping outside where animals usually sleep. 
in a, a town that's not their own. And she gives birth there, wraps the baby up as normal, and places him in a feeding trough. Which the baby does not mind, but is certainly humble. It contrasts very strongly with a firstborn son in the line of David, an heir. Born outside, placed in a feeding trough. And the first people who are told about it are shepherds. Verses 8 to 14. Which strikes another very simple note here. Shepherds are the everyman of that world. They're not looked down upon. They're just simple. They're not educated people. They don't have prosperous jobs. They're not in the limelight. They're sitting out here at night taking care of animals. No problem with that. David did that too. David, all the kings of Israel were called the shepherds of Israel. It's not a, not a bad job. It's just a simple job. And God comes to them and says, in a blaze of glory, scares them out of their minds. It says they feared a great fear. They were terrified. They're out there minding their own business. And an angel shows up and the glory of the Lord shines all around them. And this angel starts talking. And he gives them a message. That message is what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. What the angel tells these shepherds should be, and for them was, amazing. It is the height of all tragedies that for us, we run through this, we don't even enunciate all the syllables. Because we know it so well. But it was shocking to them. It's the turning of all of creation history. I have a message for you, says the angel. It's a message for us this morning. I want to summarize the the point of this passage in which this message sits. I want to summarize it with the following sentence here. So, So write this down. Think about it. We are to, this passage expects that we would give careful consideration to the Savior God has sent to us. To give careful, consistent consideration to the Savior God has sent. Consistent, not just once, every once in a while. Not when we call time out and come to this time of year, but but consistently consider Him. If you will consistent, brothers and sisters, and, and, and I know there are some here, you're not believers, and so my hope, my plea with you is that you would listen, you would give consideration to this, but most of you are my brothers and sisters, and I just want to say to you, I want to plead with you, I want to grab you. This is the key to joy and to holiness and to purity and to righteousness and to hope and to rest in your life if you would carefully consider this consistently. And the problem in life is that we do not 
Oh, it's... Ah! Nine-tenths of us here don't need to know anything more. I'm not going to say anything you don't already know. There isn't anything. I mean, not only because I'm talking about this passage, there isn't anything else that I could say that you don't know. Is that not true? Don't, don't you realize that? I talk about the same stuff every week and you already know it. You realize that, don't you? The problem is not that you don't know. The problem is that you don't consider it. Consistently. That's what God means for this passage to say is, take this, stick it in here. Ponder it all the time for your joy. So, that's where we're going. Let me begin with my first observation. It's what God has done. God has provided a Savior. The long-promised Christ the Lord. He's provided a Savior, the long-promised Christ the Lord. The passage traces out all kinds of people doing all kinds of different things, but right at the middle, what it's really about is God and what He has done. And the key verse is verse 11. As soon as you go to verse 11, you notice that it begins with the word for, indicating that it's in the middle of an argument. It's, it's a reason for something else that's come prior. So we need to back up to verse 10. So 11 is the focus, but we need to start in verse 10. The angel announces to them, here's the message, good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. News! I have news! Something's happened. What is it? It doesn't say exactly quite yet. Coming to that. But it does say that this is good news of a great joy. And that should get your attention. I, I hope for me, there is clearly, there, there is, you know, you know, a red, red flag, something that just kind of goes up. Usually we use that for a warning, a red flag. Well, I hope to develop a red flag, maybe pass it on to you. Whenever you see the word joy, rejoice, that something would pay attention. Because joy is what you are after. And when the Bible says, here it is. You should pay attention. You should say, I I need to look and grab something here. There is good news of a great joy. We are after joy in life in everything. We chase it in wine, women, and song, and a thousand other places. It is the motive that drives every single human action. The quest for joy. It's what undergirds, sustains every human heart, the hope for it, that tomorrow I might find it. We're looking. We're restless till we find it. We're restless when we lose it because we always lose it. It always runs away in this world from the things in this world. We look for it here. We catch a little glimpse of it. And then that thing passes. And we're looking again. And oh, sand runs through your fingers. You can't hold it. 
Joy is always passing, and the, we want it, and you just can't. And God says, I have some good news. There is a great joy. Listen. A great joy that does not require you to suspend reality to experience it, but a joy that steps right into reality and changes it so that you know joy always, even when sorrowing. That has come. And it is a joy that is for all the people. In the context, initially meaning all the people of Israel. He's speaking to these folks in their context. All the people is all the people of God. God is intervening with them. And he's saying it's not just for you five or ten guys. This is to be announced to all the people, all of Israel. But as we keep reading the Bible, we realize that gets blown wide open to be all of the nations. There's something here for the nations. All the people. Now we're ready for verse 11. The main verse. What's the good news? What's the great joy? Here it is. For unto you is born this day. There's something odd there. Unto you is born this day. If my wife has a baby, I might say that unto her... Maybe unto us, but I would not say that my wife has had a baby unto you. That doesn't immediately make sense. It's our baby. Now, maybe in some communal sense, you know, we all are happy because we all added to our number or something like that. But, but commonly, you would not expect the news of somebody else's birth to be explained to you as for you. Mary has had a baby unto you. Mary had a baby for you. It's not about her. She's carrying a baby for you. Unto us has been born this day in the city of of David. There's that emphasis again from verse 4. In the city of David. In Bethlehem. Critical because this connects to centuries of ancient prophecy. God had always been dropping hints. God had always been mentioning. And, and then as time went on, fleshing it out, adding a little more, elaborating. There was one coming. And one piece of that, that he was going to come in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, you want to jot it down and look at it. God said centuries before, I'm going to send one to Bethlehem. And here it happened, just like he said. Who's the one he's going to send? Well, that's where the the description, a Savior who is Christ the Lord comes in. We talk a little bit about this idea of Christ because it informs all the other words. Messiah. Different language, same word. Christ, Messiah. 
means anointed one. And what God had been saying as He dropped those hints across the centuries is that I am sending to you, I will one day send to you a chosen anointed one who will be a king in the line of David, of the lineage of David. And as He fletches out all that king would be, He would be a king, a ruler, upon whose shoulders the government of this people and of all the nations rests. And He would reign in righteousness and in justice perfectly. And undergirding Him and overlaying everything He does would be steadfast love and mercy and kindness and compassion even while He is just and righteous and pure and holy. All of these things together... I list off all those words. We should stop and think about what a king like that would be. Who's righteous. Who always does right. Always. Who does not cut corners. Or, or, or nod and, and, and wink at evil. Who is stridently committed to uprooting it and destroying it, and at the same time is full of steadfast love and mercy and compassion. How do those things go together? Because I want those things both, but I have a problem in me. If He is righteous and just, what does that say for me? Because I'm unrighteous and unjust. And yet I need compassion and steadfast love and mercy. He can be both of those things for me? How? Well, we'll come to that. But can you imagine a king in a kingdom reigning over not just a little people, a little small group, but reigning over all of the creation in perfect righteousness and justice? Pick up the newspaper today. I haven't seen today's paper. Pick up the newspaper I am quite confident every single, not just every single section, not just every single page, not just every single half page, I'm confident every single column, every single paragraph of the paper will hint at lack of righteousness and justice. Sometimes it will be in living color. And you'll cringe and cry. And sometimes you have to think about it a little bit, but it will be there too. Our world knows nothing like this. But this is what God is. And He said, I will send a king. One day I will send a king in the line of David. And He will be like that. And He will come and save His people from it. He will save His people out from that world into this kind of righteousness and justice and love and mercy and compassion. He will fix this and lift up this forever and establish it and it won't be shaken. He is the Savior that we all need. The ruler that this world and our crazy chaotic lives yearn for. Born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. 
That's odd. Because this kind of a ruler, this kind of a king, come like that? Come in this place? First worshipped by those guys? There's a hint there in that humble, simple beginning. A hint that God's going to set up the reign of this king in a humble, simple way. Because from the very start, He sends him in a humble and simple way. He speaks to the humble and the simple. And bypasses the proud. Even though He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. End of verse 11. Which is not fleshed out in this passage. But in the midst of all the other wonder and all the other shock in it, that would have been a a little catch. Because that word, in in the Greek Old Testament, and, and many people, many Jewish people in this time read the Greek Old Testament, because they spoke Greek. The Greek Old Testament uses this word 6,000 plus times. That is over 6,000 times in the place of the name Yahweh. Such that it became the way He was addressed. He is the Lord. They don't call Him Yahweh. We can't say that name. But it's common. If we're talking about the Lord, we're talking about Yahweh. And this is... The Savior Christ, the Lord. Huh? How can that be? How can God become a baby? The rest of the Bible makes clear. This passage does not. But the rest of the Bible makes clear that that is exactly, in fact, what happened. (laughs) Amazingly. God did not just look down at this world and say, I will pick another human being to be this ruler and fix it. He said, I myself will become the shepherd. I myself will step in. I myself will fix it. Reclaim a people. Eliminate evil. This little baby born in Bethlehem is the Savior we need. He is the ruler we need. He is God Himself. Which is why heaven cannot remain silent and erupts in praise. 13 following, 13, 14. Heaven understands what has just happened. It breaks forth in song of praise. Glory to God in the highest Glory to God in heaven, in the highest place. And conversely, down on earth, what is there? Peace. Peace. But not everywhere. Notice how it narrows? Peace among those with whom He is pleased. He's come to save. He's come to reign. And in this kingdom into which He will save a people and reign over them in righteousness and justice and compassion, there will be peace. But not everybody is in the kingdom. It's not automatic. It's not for every single person on the earth. There is a limit here. 
those with whom he is pleased. How do you become pleasing to God? We all instinctively and every other religion on the planet says, well, how you become pleasing to God is you figure out what God wants and you do it. And here's what God wants. And if you use the Bible, you can look at the law and you can figure out what God wants. But if you're from some other religion, you make it up. Usually you make up stuff that's a little bit challenging, but doable. When God made it up, He made up a list of absolutely impossible. Because He never meant for us to do it to make ourselves pleasing. What God has said in answer to the question, how do I make myself pleasing to God that I might know peace? God says, you don't make yourself pleasing. I do. I make you pleasing. And I'm doing that by sending you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is where we realize that we're not that far from 1 Corinthians 1 at all. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about there is no other message but Christ and Him crucified. There is no other message from God anywhere in the Bible but Christ and Him crucified. Put really simply, so, so as to put this in a way that you can, you can grasp this and see it. Maybe you've never heard it before. God, being holy and perfect and pure, has the right and thankfully is so good that He does demand that His world be good and righteous and pure and holy. He can demand that. Thankfully, He does demand that. We don't want a God that's fine with evil. He demands good. And in the face of that, every single one of us, every single one of us falls short. The Bible calls that sin. We fall short of God's requirement to be perfect because God's requirement to be perfect is not a requirement of things I do with my hands. It's a requirement in the heart that I be perfect in heart. To put it in a sentence that I love the Lord my God with all of me. That I love Him first. That I love Him supremely over everything else. We're not there. Not at all. And so we sit under God's wrath, not at peace, but at war with Him in rebellion. How do we clean that up? Well, we, we can't. It's in our hearts. It's just there. And even if you could stop today and somehow perfectly love God with all of your heart from here on out, you've got yesterday to deal with. We are without hope in this world. And so God Himself stepped into this world. God Himself came in the form of a little baby who would grow up to be a man and perfectly keep all of the law. Perfectly be exactly what God requires. The one with whom He is pleased and would be crucified on a cross anyway. What a mistake. Oh, no, no, no. Not a mistake. On purpose. On purpose, that one goes to the cross for me and for you. 
for all who trust Him. What happens here, I'm guilty under God's wrath, a sinner. Jesus is not. Jesus goes to the cross and pays that penalty that is coming on me. He absorbs the wrath of God that is coming on me. Instead, it falls on Him. And what comes to me is the pleasure of God. As He looks at me now as paid for, atoned for, clean. Pleased with me. Pleased with me. So there's peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. All of those who are covered by Christ's death on the cross. That's what this is about. God has provided a Savior to save me and to save you from our sin. A King who will reign over us for our good. God come in flesh. To deliver you from evil. To deliver you to blessing. Good news. Great joy. That's the message. And the angels pull away. The light fades. And it's dark again. And now comes the question, what do we do with that? The message proclaimed, just simply declared, and then, now what? That takes us to the second point. That's what God has done, what He has plainly announced here. And what we are to do with it is ponder this good news. And God will make it to be your joy. Ponder this good news. Carefully, consistently consider it. Ponder it. And God will make it to be your joy. There is much glorious grace on display here. God has done something that's... It floors people when they see it for the first time. But we've just seen it too much. So I plead with you, ponder it. Ponder it. There's an awesome message here. When the shepherds heard it, they see that it's real. They run, they go find the baby in the manger, and they run and tell everybody. And there's something worth observing there in passing. They hear this, they see it, they become convinced of it, and they go tell everybody. And there's something worth commenting on there. In a way, we can say we should be like them. We should see this and hear it, and it should just run out of us, and we should tell everybody about it. But I only say very carefully, in a way, because if we're honest, they had a once-in-history experience that's really difficult for us to copy. I, I think something would more naturally run out of me if that happened to me. I think. So, in a way, we can say that there's a model put out there for us, but it's not the primary identification for us in this passage. 
we have more in common with those who heard this proclamation from the lips of other human beings, those to whom the shepherds talked. Verse 17. The shepherds come to town, find the baby, and it says they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In other words, they start talking about verse 11. They start saying, this is, this is who he is. This is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And they start talking to everybody in town, walking around Bethlehem in the middle of the night, telling people what's happened. And there are two responses to that proclamation. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. There was some amazement there. This is an amazing story. And in a way, if you only read to there, it seems like that's good. That's a good response. They were amazed. doesn't say they rejected it. It says they were amazed. That's great. Until you keep reading. And you realize nothing more comes of them. You read the text, nothing comes of them. You look at history, nothing comes of them. They were amazed. It, it kind of grabbed their attention. It was, it was marvelous. It was intriguing. It, it, it held promise until December 26th rolled around. And then they called time in and went back to the store to return all the gifts that didn't fit or were the wrong color. And the bowl games came on TV. And then it was time for the ball to drop. And New Year's. And then everybody goes home and goes back to work and goes to the gym for a couple weeks. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then it's February and it's Valentine's Day and it's gone. It was amazing that what, for a moment, how many of us are right there? That this, what I'm talking about, you're even, even right at this very moment, you're struggling to see why this is amazing. It's familiar. And maybe you can recall at some point in your past when you wondered at it. But now, if there is any wonder at Christmas, it is purely, and I want to be careful with this because there's something nice about it, but I want to be clear about this, because I think for most of us, the vast majority of our wonder at Christmas, our amazement at Christmas, is purely the nice snowfall on a moonlit night, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, the crackle of flames, a nice beverage in hand, and the family gathered around the table. Oh, this is wonderful. Zero about Christ. No, he's there. He's right over there. There's a manger seat on the table. And he's not out of our minds. We haven't forgotten. And if you were to be asked, what's wonderful about Christmas? What's the reason for the season? You'd know the answer. But it isn't what your heart is marveling at. Is it? I pray I'm completely wrong. I don't think I am. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe, prayerfully, I'd be completely wrong this year for you. 
And you would be less like these folks and more like, verse 19, Mary. And we know that she's the one we're supposed to be like because of the word but. Oh, they marveled at it. But Mary treasured these things in her heart and pondered them. They said, wow! And she said, hmm. Hmm. To treasure something in your heart and to ponder it is to take it in and to hold on to it and mull it over over time. What is this? What is this? There's something here. I'm still looking. There's something here. Now, we know from this Bible, she doesn't get it yet. And you can read down, but she's still working on it. You can read down into chapter, the, uh, later into chapter 2, where it says uh, that she treasured these things in her heart. Uh, where is the verse? Somewhere in there. She, she's still doing this. She's taking things and treasuring them in her heart. She's working on it. She doesn't get it all. She obeys as much as she knows. Verse 21, time to circumcise them. She names him Jesus, like the angel told her. So she doesn't really understand what's going on. That, that's clear. Yet. Doesn't understand it yet. But she knows something's going on. And there's something far deeper than a, a flash that then goes nowhere. She takes it and she treasures it. And works on it. Long before Paul wrote this, what Paul wrote in, in 2 Timothy 2.7, in a different context, but Mary's doing what Paul says to do. Paul says, if you don't understand these things, think about them, and God will give you understanding. She's working on it before God. She knows something's up. And she is giving careful consideration to it. What is it? Now, at this point in time, as I said, Mary doesn't understand everything. And, and maybe there are some here who are exactly in her shoes. You don't understand this. You, you haven't heard this before. You've heard pieces of this before. But how does it all exactly fit together? And what do I think of this? Maybe you are exactly in her shoes I explained some of it, but it's not clear yet. And I plead with you, keep pondering. There is something here that is good news and a great joy. If it's not all lining up together, yet at this moment, be like Mary, put all the puzzle pieces on the table and keep looking at them. You know how it is when you put together a puzzle? You put the pieces there and you look at them and sometimes it just clicks. Like, that one goes over here. Look. And when you're putting together a puzzle, you don't know where that comes from. Where that comes from is God will give you understanding. Keep looking. Keep reading this. Maybe if you know a Christian friend, talk to that person. Ask them. Ask me. Ask somebody that you're sitting next to. If they don't know, ask somebody else. Ponder it. 
and obey as much as you know. If it is clear to you, if you, if you do understand, this is what this is about. This is about my only hope. This is the way to have peace with God, to trust Jesus. This humble one, born humbly, dying humbly. If you understand that, trust Him right now. Trust Him. There are no magic words. There is no formula. God, help me, a sinner. Forgive me because of Jesus' death on the cross. Have me. I submit to you. Trust Him. There's great joy here for you. Peace here for you. And for many of us here who aren't exactly in Mary's shoes and that we understand more than she understands at that point. The same message, ponder this good news and God will make it joy for you. So I need to talk for a minute about pondering for Christians. But I preface this by saying I am not meaning to present this as in you have all the power in your own mind and if we could just get together and think about it, if we were smart enough, we'd figure it all out. Remember, I, I want to bring in that, think about these things, and God will give you understanding. Those two fit together. God doesn't give understanding absent any mental engagement. Mental engagement is not God. Those things together. But as I said at the beginning, brothers and sisters, I cannot overstate the magnitude of the problem that comes to us because we will not give time to considering these things. If you would consider, if you would ponder, treasure these things in your heart, a couple of things would happen. At least a couple of things would happen. God would give you deeper and wider understanding of biblical truth. Intellectual understanding sometimes, but an understanding of how this doctrine connects to this piece of my life. What I'm doing over here that is about this. He would give you an ability to understand and connect those things such that you would see, okay, Isaiah 53 says that He's provided a Savior, Christ the Lord, who was crucified for my transgressions, crushed for my iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought me peace. It says that. Peace. First Peter 3 tells me that when Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, He did that to bring me to God. Peace, so that I have been brought to God. And I am worried and torn and struggling and burdened and anxious. If you ponder that, He will give you an ability to connect and say, brother, sister, or He'll say, daughter, son, this is true. You have peace with me. 
The one who reigns over every single thing in the earth, such that if you want to look at this passage, that people end up in Bethlehem because I decided, though a Roman emperor is the one who decrees it, the Roman emperor is under my control. Everything is under my control. And you have peace with me. You have been brought to me. You are in fellowship with me. What do you lack? What can hurt you? What is missing? You see this connection. And secondly, beyond just the intellect, there, there will be... Like this, there will be an experienced awareness of the sweetness of the communion that has been won for you with God. I'll try to say that again. There will be an awareness that is experienced, not just intellectually known, but is experienced. You will experience the sweetness of communion with God that has been won for you. Because... This pondering, part of it's working on facts and figuring out grammar and whatnot. But it's also communing with God Himself while you're doing it. It's so interestingly, what you find is as you sit here, kind of arm in arm with, with God looking at this, He's here. And when you sit this close to somebody, I'm speaking physically here, their body heat warms you. And you sense their presence, their smell. The squishy parts, the bony parts. The hot parts, the cold parts. You sense them. In a way that works around just the intellectual understanding of the, of the facts. You feel it. So the two things that benefit you from pondering is that your mind gets engaged and you see more truth and you understand how it relates to your life and you are experiencing God while you do that. There is... A remarkable benefit for you in that. So I plead with you, ponder Him. Come to Him humbly and say, I'm going to work on this. Will you give me understanding? Walk with me through this, God. And don't give up on it. And don't set it on the shelf. And don't be content with just knowing the facts. Be discontent with just knowing the facts. Don't stop there. Don't be satisfied with that. You already know all the facts. You need an experience of God, which comes in the facts. As the facts lift up the beauty of Jesus, you see, this is what you have won for me. Oh God, you have won for me the ability to feel this warmth. It lifts up Christ in your eyes. This whole thing spirals. Ponder this good news and God will make it to be for you your joy.
The shepherds at the end respond. Return, verse 20, they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. That experience can be yours as you ponder. You've been told some stuff. You can ponder it and you will find, just like I was told, it's true. And it will be joy for you. God's trustworthy. God actually meets with me and cares about me. I know that He should. He does. I find it to be true. As I engage with Him, pondering the truth. So brothers and sisters, I plead with you, consistently consider what God has done in sending you a Savior. Or I could say, live centered on Christ and Him crucified. Or I could say, consider your calling. Or I could say, preach the gospel to yourself because it is all the same, always. This is where you find life. As you find Christ in the midst of what He's done for you. And if you set that aside and don't make it the center of your heart, you cannot find the life and the experienced rest and joy and hope and peace that He means to be for you in Christ. Consider Him. Ponder this. God has sent you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I pray that You would do a work now, this evening, Friday night, Saturday, You would do a work on behalf of my brothers and sisters that causes them to give time to this. To give focus to it. To ask You to show them what's in this story, what's in these words. Whatever passage you look at, it doesn't need to be this story. Wherever, Wherever they go, would You give them a passion continue to consider it? And would you then graciously meet them there and give them a little taste? You did that for me a little bit yesterday and it is a sweet encouragement. So I pray that you would do that. You would give them this kind of sweet encouragement. You interject yourself into their lives and give them joy from that fact. And I pray for those here, Lord, who who don't know you yet, call them to you. Open their eyes. Give them the ability to see beyond the the words that they understand to see what's actually there, the reality of it. Save them and bring to them joy and peace. Would Christ be honored in their lives, in my life, in this church. It's for His name and for His glory that I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 801- 
943-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.